Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Michael Bailey. Uh, Joe may still be ill, we're not sure, but he was due to be off, so that's why I'm here. We have with us John McKenzie. Hello, John. Hello, Michael Bailey. We also have JJ Bull. Hello, Joe. JJ. Hello, John. John. Oh, yeah, it's hot in here, isn't it? That's yeah. your brain's frazzled now. It is really. We've been talking really for a long it? time. We've been talking about long, a long time talking of stuff, and the stuff we spoke about with the talking was. <gasps> Manchester City drawing at Nottingham Forest and how in a parallel universe somewhere they won this game or maybe they also lost it. Who knows? They did both. All of it. All the results <laughs> all of the time. Uh, the children's book Flat Stanley is also in there along with Newcastle losing at Liverpool and having goalie troubles ahead of the League Cup final and a medal twist. Uh, remote viewing and how it's complete garbage <laughs> and not looking into the future. Oh, Chelsea, Graham Potter. Yeah, that's all going very well. Does he have too much of a supply teacher energy to succeed ever? In oh, life? that sounds really harsh and not what I meant at all. Yeah. <laughs> in that's the words really of JJ harsh. Bull. Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't clip this bit. That's not it. That's not what I mean. Okay. Um, and Barcelona, who are storming La Liga. And if you want to know even more about Barcelona, you should get The Athletic, where there is loads of Barcelona, isn't there, John? There is, yes. I did a pronunciation guide with some of our Barcelona writers recently, so I'm really going to have to nail the pronunciation of Laia Sevea Herrera's name. That was all right, wasn't it? That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Ballas, much easier to say. And um, I think this is an Irish name. I don't think it's Spanish. Dermot Corrigan. But uh, excellent, excellent Barca, Barca coverage. Uh, well, um, there you go. Get The Athletic. Should we say that? Yeah. And if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, T-I-F-O, you'll get a free trial for 30 days of which you can read it. And if you don't like it, you can just get it the hell out of there. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. These guys bailing me out. Get ready for another hour of that to come. Um, but at this point, I will leave you in the uh, warm hands. Cool hands. Cool hands, warm embrace. Warm hands. Cool embrace. Do it the other way around, right? Make it your thing. The warm uh, hands and allow, the cool embrace. Yes. Do whatever you want. Let, allow me to leave you in the uh, chilly breeze of Steve Hankels.
Only one place to start today, which is at Villa Park, where Arsenal won, having lost lots before, including to Manchester City. That was a really big defeat. But now that Arsenal have won, everything's fine again. They're back on top of the league. Everything's great. John, what did you make of Arsenal? It's all out. You know, they're, they're back. They're, they're going to win it. Everything's fine. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because uh, that game, I feel as though, was a game that Arsenal deserved to win, but also didn't deserve to win at the same time depending on at what point in the game you looked at it. Obviously, scoring a couple of goals in injury time is a nice way to, to get the win. And they did enough in the game to, to generate chances to, to, to win. But yeah, the same sorts of fragilities that we started to see creeping in with Arsenal. I think two goals from not a huge amount of uh, attacking impetus from Villa. A couple of nice goals on tra- in transition. Thomas Partey not being in, obviously plays that role of, of, of making sure that those sorts of goals aren't scored and two of those goals were scored from not a particularly aggressive Villa side, I didn't think. I thought Villa were quite poor, but at the same time, it, it is worth saying that Arsenal did very well to get back. When, you're, when your goal's down, it's, it's always hard to, to come back into games and they, and they show that, especially when you're in an, uh, a bit of a negative run. And yeah, we were saying just before we started this, like it's, it's interesting because I feel as though this game doesn't give any credence to the idea that Arsenal are suddenly out of their, their slump. But that kind of momentum that you get from winning a game at the death and then your rivals dropping points could be enough to, to, to get things going in the right direction again as well. So, yeah, lots of, lots of ifs, maybes, could bes in, in the football this weekend. Things could have been very different at the end of the weekend. We could have seen Arsenal drop points and maybe City not drop points, in which case, yeah, we would be having a very different conversation today. But this, this is football, right? This is how it goes. I think th- some people thought that Arsenal would probably just crumble a little bit some people not me obviously I thought they'd be absolutely fine but achieving that win from that situation strikes me as the sort of thing that successful teams do JJ the ones who win things that's what they do they pull that out of the fire (laughs) this game just shows how stupid football is right because at 2 all, or even at 2-1 for most of it whatever and then you're thinking oh Arsenal have capitulated they've all they've bottled it that's the narrative and then you get all videos on (laughs) places like Tifo, and then things is doing things like, oh, Arsenal are too predictable. They've been sussed out. You know what's wrong with them. Every team knows how they play, and they do, but they are able to get over it because they've played well with it. And then because they score two goals in injury time, it's changed, and they've got they've suddenly they are real mentality monsters, and they've come through, and now they're back on top and in control of it. And there is truth in all different versions of what this game is. <laughs> There's the thing, like they were. Uh, they were fine. They conceded two goals. The second, like what you said about Jorginho versus Party, was that the ball went through Jorginho's legs. Maybe Party would have stopped that for the goal. No, I don't. I, I, stop, no, look, snap earlier on. Yeah, look, I have been on record saying that you know you can't necessarily just say if you shove another player into a position, the, none of these goals would happen. But again, all you, I think you can say in these situations is goals were scored with Arsenal transitioning backwards, uh, and that is a, an area where I think they've been quite strong. This there's season, a certain lack so. of speed and difference between yeah, Jorginho and Party. Yeah, exactly. I think Partey would be a bit slightly more early to to snap onto something and maybe stop it as well. I think, uh, I mean, they're all right. Like Trossard's come in for Martinelli because Martinelli looks a bit tired. He's getting taken off quite often, not quite as not producing as much as he was before. You've got um, Benjamin White, as he likes to be known, yeah. uh, Benny Blanco to his pals. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, Blanco. Yeah, Ben Blanco at right back, and he uh, is. Well, he's been getting substituted for Tommy Asu quite a lot recently. 
And Tommy Asu even started against, was it Man City he started against? Yeah. yeah. So the, the players... saw that back pass. Oh, yes. Yes, that, that's the one. But I mean, that was just unfortunate. Like Arteta said, uh, he's worked with Tommy Asu for a long time. He's never seen him make that pass ever in training. If you're then every single day in training and you don't see it, it's unfortunate. But then you've got just players who may be playing together an awful lot. They play in the same way. They're trying to adapt it a little bit now and again and tweak things. But if it works, then it works. And they're a little bit like the Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool were in that regard. That what they're doing was working really well. So why change it? The reason you would change it is because everyone's figured it out and they know ways to stop it. But if you're good enough, which Arsenal are, you can get by. And that's the difference that you'll have. And then you'll see if there's any more slight tweaks from Arteta with things you do going forward. But you can't really do that because the players he's got function perfectly as what they're doing so then it might be you have different options on the bench like Manchester City do so they can change the way they do things there was a video I saw this week of Guardiola whether he's being real or not talking about how if he wants to build down the left he'll play Laporte if he wants to uh, have runners in midfield he'll play Gundogan and Foden something like that because you've got different options different players make you play in different ways you can't suddenly just make players do things you want them to do because certain players suit different situations which is why certain managers will manage teams in different ways because they have different players and uh, Arsenal are Good, but I, yeah, my original point was that because the score is 4-2, you think Arsenal have really come forward and they're champions and waiting now because they've come, overcome this. In actual fact, they're just they're still clearly... like They don't want to have conceded what they did. The goals weren't great. They can work on that in training. But uh, had it gone a different way, the mentality might be totally different and it might have changed them psychologically going into their next game. So it's very important they've won, obviously, but then all games are important to win. The, the concept <laughs> of like Arsenal becoming predictable is quite interesting because <clears throat> we've talked a lot on this channel about how one of the strengths of Arsenal at the moment is that they have a lots of ways of being able to problem solve. But actually, if you break down Arsenal's approach, it's roughly the same all the time, right? So they can build up with different shapes. They can have a, a back three, one of their fullbacks moving out, making the, the back four into a back three. And then they can have two midfielders in front of them, or they can, you know, you can, you can have one of your fullbacks pushing down the line. They have all of these sorts of solutions that allow them to get through teams as they as they press them etc and and in every phase of play they have that level of flexibility but when you actually break down the the system it is roughly the same sort of system with roughly the same sort of players and JJ makes the point that you know there was a couple of changes made in recent games and and that hasn't necessarily benefited them so I think there's there's a couple of things that are going on one is that they've been able to rely on largely the same starting 11 when they've needed to and the other one is that yeah they, there is now a sense in which in the second half of the season we're going to start seeing teams with solutions to some of the problems that Arsenal face so actually I think the, the three games that where they dropped points in a row quite interesting because the first one was Everton Sean Dyche's Everton and Everton did really interesting things in the midfield area they played a mid block with a really flexible rotation to stop space opening up in the middle which is something that Arsenal are really good at doing opening up space by getting teams to step forward to them and then exploiting that space we then saw Brentford who played the, the classic let's sit deep absorb pressure try and hit them on the break and they didn't have solutions for that as well and then they had Man City who obviously one of the best teams in the world and beat them playing their own style of play as well so I think what's interesting for me is that we've now seen Arsenal come up against a number of different teams who've caused them problems in different ways and what the Premier League is just an unforgiving league they they have the best tactical minds in in the analysis departments they have the best managers in the dugouts and they also have the, the the most talented players who are able to solve those problems as well so this is going to be the challenge for Arsenal now I think it's it, it we can talk about momentum all we want and obviously momentum is important but I think the big question is going to be how do they respond when they come up against teams like 
Everton who think of a really good approach to, to cause them problems in certain phases of their play. How do they get around those problems? Is the fact that they only have like a very sort of one-dimensional flexibility within the same system going to be enough? They also think, uh, they also think the other thing that I thought was relevant is that in, in terms of um, the different teams they finished that they've dropped points to, like the, the tactical stuff going on, whatever, and where they've dropped it, is also the psycho- psychological uh, difference. What am I trying to say? Delete all this bit and start again. <laughs> so the games they lost that John just touched on, like Everton, uh, Everton had that uh, unique thing with a new manager, a different style of play, who was obviously going to put that thing in, galvanise the home fans. It just felt inevitable that Everton would get something out of that game. And it was just after Arsenal had had their first blip in the, like basically the whole season where they lost to Man City in the Cup. Because Man City put out a strong team, Arsenal didn't, and that's probably where they lost it. Then you come into Brentford, who have caused them big problems before, and they have the maybe maybe it is psychological as well as physical advantage of being massive lads. Like so, they can uh, play direct. They can really cause Arsenal problems in the way that uh, Man City get caused problems by Brentford. If you have small technical players, then you often get that sort of issues coming through. And then you come in off the back of, uh oh, we might be in trouble here because we just lost Everton, and now we've drawn with Brentford. That's not good. Points dropped. And the performance wasn't great against Brentford either, I thought. And then you come into Man City, who obviously you're worried about, who have already beaten you in the cup recently, and you don't want to let this drop, and then that sort of slides here. So then you could say, again, my football is stupid, well, they've come around again with the mentality, the psychological part of it, they've managed to get through it. I think one good example of it on the pitch, of how they got back to this game, was when Zinchenko scored that goal, the long-range hit, which they've got quite good at Arsenal, they must be practising that in training, the the, the shot from like 20... Two yards out, yeah, completely unmarked from a corner, wasn't it? It's bizarre. This is something I was going to say to you that maybe we should do. In a, well, maybe we'll do this in a video. This is how Tifo works, right? <laughs> is that there's um there's definitely something where like Party scored a goal. Remember that they were he scored an identical goals. Well, they, they? they know where the space is, so yeah. that if everyone's pushing forward and they're creating these things here, then what a lot of teams have done is start to have someone at the edge of the box uh, free for a, for a cutback. But then Arteta's gone like another five yards back to someone even further back, just to the side. And Zinchenko scored that goal. Great, great hit. Uh, great control and technique. But then rather than going like, yeah, so back in the game, just run straight back to the other half. That's like the the general leading the troops. Let's go. We're not done here yet, which is good. That's that's what you want to see. And that's what you, they've got the right mentality in their arsenal. It's just about who wants it more. It genuinely is. What's really interesting about this, right? Been here for twenty minutes. Everyone's talking about mentality here, but if you actually look at the chances that Arsenal created, where they probably should have scored, versus the ones that they actually did, like it felt like they scored very low-value chances, and they missed all of the. Like Erdogan missed like an absolute sitter, yeah, which is nuts. Like that. So, like when we're talking about mentality, surely mentality is in those moments. Like I feel as though though Arsenal were a little bit rocked in that game, and they got back into it just because they pinged it in from a couple of like long distance shots, and that's that. And and then like obviously a break at a corner where the goalkeeper committed. It's like maybe I would see something totally different if they hadn't scored <laughs> yeah. two late ones and Odegaard had missed yeah. that that big chance. That's a weird thing. It was, it someone else missed a big one as well, wasn't there? It was I can't remember who it was. Uh, I think Ketty missed yeah. a few headers, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, and it's the kind of thing where you think, oh, well, they should have bought a striker then because Nketiah can't do it. He's been brilliant and his goal-scoring record is far superior to Gabriel Jesus, uh, especially this season. So he's actually probably a really, not a better option than Jesus, but he gives them something extra. We're also talking about ga- like games that they lost, which they didn't have the mentali- <clears throat> mentality to turn around, right? Or they lost a couple of games, they, they drew to Brentford. Like, w- were they not, like, were they not me- mentality yeah. monsters then? What do we know? Yeah. We don't know yeah. anything. We don't. Nothing. Let's end the podcast. Yeah. So, want it more, <laughs> goals change games, that's all fine. Um, one of the long-range shots did go into the net off Emi Martinez's head, which 
Could be one of the funniest things. I, you know, I I don't mind. I mean, it's a great header, quite, wasn't it? I like him. And I love a long range does, goal. I, like, but... It's very rare. There was a, a statistical decline in long range goals for a long time in the Premier League as expected goals models became more and more used and relied upon. And I, I think I covered this for the Telegraph when I used to write for them when I was a real boy. And the um, the, the like, so they started. They stopped shooting from long range as much because obviously it's low value chances. I spoke to who did I speak to? Um, Matt Taylor, the guy who used to play for Portsmouth. Yes, and he's now I think he's a youth coach, maybe at Spurs. I can't, I can't remember who is or was. Anyway, I spoke to him because he used to be able to hit them from long range, and I was asking, "Is there been a notable decline in players doing that?" Um, and he gave me an answer which I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Basically, no no one's coaching them not to do it, but I think at a youth level, you don't want to discourage kids from doing that. But they wouldn't see as many, and maybe there's just a different kind of tactical coaching going on, so you would do it less. But anyway, Jorginho hits it from long range. Well, Good hit. Go go watch Rotherham, because that's where Matty Taylor is manager of now. Is that right? Yeah. I think that might yeah. be the wrong Matt Taylor. Is it the wrong <laughs> Matt Taylor? Yeah. Didn't delete it quickly enough. I know. Steve. I know. It's all right. I was, one, I was wondering that, and then I was like, oh, no. And then you wrote it in. I was like, so oh, you yeah. shouldn't trust me, unfortunately. We can cut this bit out, right? Yeah. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Brilliant. Great. Yeah. Anyway, Emmy Martinez, uh, you're right about all the long range shooting. That's great, JJ. But I do want to bring it back to the fact that the ball went in off his head, which did seem to be quite enjoyable for a lot of people because Emmy Martinez had been taking his time. He's, he's, he's that kind of fellow, I suppose, who you can kind of appreciate how he does football. Do you mean as though he was time wasting, and then there, so it's a yes. just reward? As as yeah. as uh, as Steve has popped in here, did he shit house himself? This sounds like something an Arsenal fan would write. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's a secret. Well, I mean, this guy is a World Cup winner, and some of his shenanigans during the World Cup final are exactly why they managed to to win it. And on the way, all the way there, so you have got to take the good with the bad. Martinez is really good at that sort of stuff. I don't think it's a just reward. I thought the narrative would be that he's a secret agent for Arsenal helping them win the game. I thought that's what, be, what people would do. But I've not been on the internet much this weekend. I uh, wasn't listening because I'm looking up Matthew Taylor. Yeah. He was most recently a manager at Walsall, but he is now no longer coaching. He was at Tottenham under 18s. Yeah, that's when I spoke to him. Yeah. So there's too many... Matthew there's Taylors. many Matthew. We've talked a lot about Danilo's, haven't we? We but did before we started recording. There's a lot yeah. of Matthew Expected Taylors in Danilo's. So we, were, yeah. we, we Googled how many Danilo's are there and then professional football. How many did you find? Like <laughs> there was like pages. 10 pages on transfer marks. I didn't go through all of them. Well, that's all grand. There was some freshness to Arsenal in terms of we had Jorginho hitting the shot that went in off Emi Martinez's head. Yes. Uh, um, Trossard was in as well, which is a bit of freshness. I like him a lot as a player. So very different player to Marti- Martinelli. Yeah, indeed, which sort of touches on what JJ was saying. But you've got those elements of, uh, of, of I suppose, more to play with for Arteta, which over when you are trying to adjust yourself to people adapting to what you're doing, puts you in good stead. Yeah, I mean, Trossard is like a, I think a much narrower player, right, than the Martinelli. And it was interesting seeing Trossard. <laughs> yeah, just skinny, very thin. Yeah. <laughs> he's only if you two, actually he's, catch him side on, you can't see. He's it. two dimensional. It's quite yeah. hard to mark. Yeah, um, which brings us back to um, <laughs> quantum physics and the, <laughs> the sixth dimension. Did you ever read that book, Flat Stanley, when you were growing up? Mm. Like a kid that got squashed. That rings a bell. Like, and he could like sneak under doors because he was that thin. Mm. What did he do with that power? Uh, Plays for Arsenal. I can't remember. I think the the, the denouement of the of the of the the novel if children's novels can have denouements was that someone stuck a bike pump in his mouth and pumped him back up jeez yeah in a nice way 
So don't yeah. don't stick to what you are. You change to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great moral that. Um, <laughs> uh, I was at the press box uh, at Wigan, Norwich, Wigan, Wigan, Norwich on Saturday. And it was funny, funny how many people did like the idea of Arsenal um, chipping up. It's a bit mean, isn't it, really? And, people but just didn't build with the idea of like the people ahead getting worse. Like people didn't used to hate Jurgen Klopp until he like became a manager who always won, and now they they hate him. People I, in, this, I, in the entire United Kingdom just love watching people fa- do, fail when they're doing <laughs> trip well, trip up and land on their face. Yeah, no one's allowed to be successful. Anyone who has any sort of success has to be taken down. There's probably a few exceptions. Well, in terms of uh, teams who are successful and being taken down, how about Manchester City at Nottingham Forest? Yes. Uh, I haven't didn't give out the score for the other one, so let me say it was Nottingham Forest one one Manchester City. There we go. Uh, it was nil one for a long period of time, and then boom, Chris Wood not offside, equalising late on. Um, how did Manchester City not win this game? I feel like it's, were they just unlucky, it's, John? It's very really hard unlucky, to so these unlucky, games, right? Because you know, there's there is a, a possible world back to quantum quantum mechanics again yeah. there's a possible world that is not too far away from our own in which we're sitting in this room talking about how Arsenal lost Man City won now Man City are in the driving seat for the Premier League and it obviously didn't happen that way but it, Man, City, Man City absolutely battered Forest, and they didn't manage to score enough goals to beat them this happens sometimes in football sometimes you can play well and not win and sometimes you can not play well and win what the conclusion of this is I don't know but it's it, it's very hard to analyze I think games where there's there's a clear dominant team who who don't come through but this is this happens with Manchester City they this is I guess the the occupational hazard of their play style that they dominate games in certain ways but um you, you force teams back and then you, you allow them openings to, to, to actually take you apart, which, yeah. Staying on um, quantum mechanics, <laughs> which obviously I know very much about. I had a dream last night where I woke myself up and I woke up. Like, oh, wow. like I was walking through into my room and saw me and then woke me up. Isn't that weird? That is very yeah, weird. That's... It was really disconcerting. I've been thinking about it ever since. I had a, <laughs> feel a, weird today. I had a very long dream about frontline pressing systems the oh other day oh my god it wow. was it was it was as boring as it sounded <laughs> you two living been, up to your i've been thinking about pressing all day and i dreamed about pressing imagine that I, no i can't <laughs> i can't i cannot imagine it i i suppose um erling holland maybe woke himself up thinking oh i did stick that chance away and uh, well I, that's another example right where in, in another dimension that is concurrently happening is that holland miss he scores that hit that he puts over I, the bar and then it changes it. I think this is this. I think this is a slight shortcoming in him. I think he just too often tries to hit the thing too hard. Like he, he will always just leather it. Like if he'd have just taken a little bit off, he didn't have to hit it that hard. That's how he gets goals because it goes in when other people would take shots that would be saved by scores many more. Are you saying that yeah. if he was a little bit more nuanced in his shooting, he would have more than the twenty-six goals he currently has in the Premier League? If anything, he hit it too well. <laughs> you know, it just kept rising. I don't mean uh, John's job. Well, and yours is to analyse uh, football, but I just feel like there's very little to to do with Holland because he knows what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> he knows what he's doing and he can do what he wants to do, yeah. which is a, a potent combination. I also think like games like this, I think he's allowed, everyone's allowed to have one of those where you're just not quite as up for it. It's not in Forest away. Do you really care? You should win. You think you'll win. You're Who so wants good. It more? Exactly. But these things happening again, like you're not clinical. Like, like Foden runs through on goal just gets caught in a little bit of two minds what to do with it and then loses where he is and doesn't get the pass away, doesn't get the shot away and falls over. And you're thinking, it's just... what? That's another football man thing to say, but it's very just 
one of those days, isn't it? It just happens sometimes and it's hard to get yourself out of that. Well, uh, Steve Cooper is obviously a tactical genius. As he said, this was how, this was how, this is what the game needed to be. This was how they saw it. And it played perfectly. You know, Steve they Cooper would used miss... to do this against Marcelo Bielsa, and it used to drive me insane. Like we used to, we battered them. Uh, where was he at? Swansea. Swansea. Week after week for oh. Swansea, one nil wins. And then he'd be like, "Yes, you know, we because he had a tactical plan yeah. for his games. Like most coaches, I b- believe most coaches. Well, have you, tactical say plans. you say that. You say that. And because whenever he won, then it was because you know the tactical plan was was there. It was there, so it must have been a tactical, a piece of tactical genius to beat them. So yeah, there's games where we battered his teams, and then he, you know, they would. Was a win, and, and and he'd be like in the press box afterwards. Scott Parker also did this. Famous tactical genius Scott Parker. Forest staying up. We'll be no, it looks that way at the moment. Yeah. yeah, well, they've they've got good players. I mean, they've got they so bought many fifty good players. of them. Like who, like the new ones that you just forget they've just recently signed. Like Kaylor Navas, that Champions League serial winner, is in the team. Felipe was Atletico Madrid quite important, wasn't he? he was like a really good, really good defender. <laughs> of course, playing next to John Joe Shelby and Jack Colback like, who... and, and Remo Freuler. Yeah. Yeah. Bernardo Silva's shot a little bit close to Kilo Navas. Maybe should have got. A uh, I think there's enough on it that he couldn't reach okay. it. I, I, another example of um, City like doing something that Arsenal are doing, taking shots from slightly longer range. It's the future. It works. Yeah, long range shots for me. Uh, the, these, oh. This running order is very biased. Do you not think? Uh, we've got here Steve saying John maybe will say something about XG and how City should, square quotes, have won the game, but they failed to win eight games out of 24 this season, four losses, four draws. Are we going for Steve? Thank you. Yeah, and and in the Arsenal section, we actually missed the bit where he was like, are we into the soft factor stuff with some of the Arsenal things? So suggesting that actually Arsenal have these this magic that no one else has. So sometimes you think we're a biased podcast, but you know what? We're fighting it. Yeah, we're fighting the bias. The bias is there. (laughs) We're trying to call it out. (laughs) Calling out our own bias. Um, Where where does it leave the title challenge then? In in terms of is it it, that there is one? Yes, Man United are creeping into it, and I think they are genuinely good. I don't think John does. I think they're. I think Manchester United are good. Don't get me wrong. I think they're like from where they should have been, given where they were at the beginning of the season. The turnaround has been remarkable. And I have, I've, I'm on record in many places saying that I think that Eric Ten Hag is a brilliant manager and it's like one of the worst things for Man- to happen to Manchester United as a Manchester, as a Leeds United fan to, to have him be the coach there. But I do think that people are maybe over, overrating where they're at because I think there's games where they, they come through and they, they play really well and there's other games where they struggle through and I don't think they quite have the level of consistency yet to be really challenging but yeah at the, at the moment at the top everything's sort of up and down every week like Manchester City as Steve says are lo- losing and dropping points way more than you expect them to um, regardless of whether or not there's there's some kind of underlying number chicanery going on but yeah it's it's a fun it's a fun league right it's, yeah I like it. it's nice having a different team at the top it's nice having teams becoming competitive it'd be nice if the top six was as strong as it should be I noticed that Spurs crept into the top four again so um, that that's that's kind of fascinating, but yeah, it, it just seems to be the case that we can't have the top six all be good at the same time. But I guess that's because teams naturally have cycles. And, um, and another reason like football is stupid, like the, the the narrative that Liverpool are broken now, they're gone, that they've you know, Klopp should leave. People have said these things. Mm-hmm. They are two games behind, and what is it? If they win both their games in hand, they will go above Spurs. <laughs> no, no, they'll be they'll just one point behind Spurs. Is that right? 38, 41, yeah. Yeah. And then that's them 
just on the edge of Champions League places and there's still lots of games left to play. Nuts. Which we're going to come on to. But before we do, I just wanted to bring up the synopsis of Flat Stanley. <laughs> oh, yes, please <laughs> which do. Which is in here. Uh, the book uh, recounts the adventures of Stanley Lambchop. Stanley Lambchop? Do you think that's his real like birth given no. uh, after he squashed uh, after he is squashed flat by a bulletin board while very, sleeping that doesn't seem very heavy does it a bulletin board i don't know what the, if yeah, you were to if manners. you were to have a, a a children's novel and the child the, the, the plot is the child gets flattened by something you wouldn't go for a bulletin board would you? what would you go for curious i mean there's a link through to it but i haven't anvil? got on that anvil yeah exactly well that would yeah. Anyway, uh, he survives, good news, and decides to make the best of being flat. Soon he discovers that he is able to enter locked rooms by sliding under the door. <laughs> Shall I continue? Over the course of the story, he also rolls up to go out to a park, uh, and he is used as a kite by his brother. I am reading all of this, by the way. Uh, another special advantage of being flat is that Flat Stanley can visit his friends in California by mailing himself in an envelope. That's genius. Stanley even helps catch art museum thieves by disguising himself as a painting on the wall of himself, I presume. Eventually, Stanley becomes tired of his flatness and his brother restores his proper shape with a bicycle pump. So what does he learn in the end then? What's his, what's his art? I think that's, we, we all have to think about that. Yeah. Being, well, different, being different is fun. Yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's better to fit in with everyone else. That's the moral of that have, story. Have you, have your, <laughs> have, are you weird? Yeah. Try and sort it out with have a your fun. <laughs> have your fun with it. Make the most of it. But it can't last forever. So eventually, you're going to wake yourself up. I think that's probably what happens. It your, was really, genuinely, dream. very freaky, that. Well, I'll tell you who else will be feeling uh, pretty flat. That is Newcastle United fans. Uh, we'll be speaking uh, about them individually. Uh, just after this break. That was a lovely segue. Thanks. That's Steve-O, wasn't it? Was it yours? That's a Steve-O yeah, sort of, a I, rare, I was trying to read it and say it to the camera Steve at the same hit. time. <laughs> Ian Irving here, host of the world's biggest Manchester United podcast, Talk of the Devils, brought to you by The Athletic, of course. It's the most exciting week of football for the club in years, with another league victory teeing up the Barcelona second leg and the League Cup final on Sunday. So make sure you join me, Andy Mitten, Laurie Whitwell and Carl Anker for this week's episodes. There's Takeover Talk in there, of course, too. Just search for Talk of the Devils on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on then, shall we? To Newcastle United nil, to Liverpool, two goals in the first 20 minutes and a red card for Nick Pope. It, possibly the most unfortunate timed red card <laughs> in the history of football it's a bit of a surprise as well wasn't it like we're kind of expecting liverpool to lose and uh, newcastle to continue flawlessly well i don't know if we expected newcastle, uh, sorry liverpool to lose but i thought 
we we knew that Liverpool are in a bad moment, as everyone oh, that's, yeah, says. That is it. Bad moment. A bad moment. I have to say things are more. Not anymore. Though. No. They and, they took a bicycle pump to it, didn't they? That's yeah. They, they, <laughs> pumped, they, they were pumped up yeah. for the game. Yes. Yes, very good. Um, Newcastle have been in the top four for most of the season. They've dropped out of it now. They're on what you might think is a slight blip. I think it's probably returned to where probably they actually are. Um, but maybe they can keep the psychology and momentum up, as we've been talking about earlier in the, in the podcast. <laughs> Just want it more. Who Just come want, on. Want it more. I thought Newcastle were brilliant at the start of this game. They were so good, and they had Liverpool. They were focused, They were targeting like quite heavily Alexander-Arnold on that Liverpool right side um, by shifting the ball to Newcastle's right and pinging it with a big switch pass out to that side, and they were um, really, really causing trouble. So Maximum was having his bit of fun with uh, on that side. They were getting creating chances, looked really good, then all of a sudden, Liverpool score. With a really quick counter-attack. I think Nunez scores the first one, doesn't he? Yeah. It's a great finish. Puts his foot through it, yeah. A great finish, lovely goal. And that's them up. And then all of a sudden, same thing. Newcastle keep going, Liverpool hit them on the break, just get a goal, and you think that's the game probably done. Even though Newcastle started superbly, and then it is absolutely done when that high line is caught out one more time with Nick Pope coming out. And then he takes a big, like, clatter. Like, so he goes to head the ball, can't quite reach it. It's very similar in the way that Phil Foden can't reach the ball when he's trying to do that thing and get something for us. It's very odd. That maybe just people can't... Maybe the changing light has made everyone go funny. Anyway, tries to head the ball, doesn't... He smashes his head off it on the floor, which would hurt. And he puts his hands out instinctively to then gather the ball and then obviously handballs it. I mean, he's trying to head the ball when it's on the floor he's not and, he's and, trying to head it but he's not, he's just not close enough he still goes for it and then he smashes his head off the floor with but it why, why didn't he just try and kick it I don't understand why yeah, did, he mis- did he misread the ball it looked to me like he misread the ball I and think it bounced he it, funny yeah. and then he realised he was going to try and head it away but then realised he was completely out of position and he's committed you've got to do something yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so just grab the ball well I, I, the ball grabbing I think honestly is just natural instinct yeah. after like crashing his head off it he just goes out puts his hands there and it's there and then that's why he, that happens. I mean, I obviously don't know what Nick Pope's actually thinking because although I can wake myself up in dreams in third person, I can't see into Nick Pope's mind. Not Maybe yet. I'll dream about that. Tonight. Maybe I'll dream. Maybe I, like I've been reading. It. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, remote viewing. Have you heard of this? I've not. No. no. Remote viewing. There are people. <laughs> Please, like everyone who listens to this, I'm not a mad conspiracy just, or like just, I'm not mad. Just keep. Just keep going. Jim, I'm very uh, skeptical of all these things. Safe space. But remote viewing is where you can access what someone else sees um, by being able to like go into a uh, like hypnotic style state where you can then access what other people are seeing. As though like in Game uh, Game of Thrones where um, the bird boy can see all stuff. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Bird boy, right? It works. Is that, yes. is that like, when you yeah just give yeah. people names? You know what they roughly are. Yeah. So it's that sort of idea because he's like like he's part tree or something, isn't he? he like I've, I'm, I've not watched. Game he does of have Thrones, a strong but... connection to the tree, right? So yeah. then he can see all stuff because <laughs> it's all it's the force basically yeah. is what they're yeah. doing, right? So they've done that from Star Wars. So this is what they have. But then apparently a lot of people claim that there are military divisions with uh, in certain countries that also have remote viewers who try and prevent people from accessing secret so places. So it's just become a game of football. Well, then with I mean, people's heads. I mean, the men who stare at goats—that was a real CIA uh, project. <laughs> That was a real thing that they came out of. Uh, and so this is one of those things, remote viewing. So anyway, uh, Newcastle were unlucky in this game. And I think Liverpool, uh, well, deserved a win in the end because they got through it. But this is what you see. I thought Newcastle were genuinely good at the start. And so Liverpool are on the up. I again. only watched this game until the, the red card because I don't enjoy watching 10 v 11. But I noticed that 
I think, well, hang, on, hang on, but so you just don't watch games well, if there's a If it's my off. team, I'll watch it. But, no, but if like, it was too, just a football match, you would be like, oh, there's a red card. I just card, don't I'm think you, gonna... there's nothing really interesting happens tactically, right? Because you're like, well, it was like a, it was 10 v 11. What so. about the sport? The, the, the psychology? The, the... I mean, yeah. But like yeah. in a game like that, especially because they're like, they're 2 0 up, right? They go down to Liverpool, uh, go, go up one. No, that's not how it happens, is it? It's the other way around. Newcastle go down one. <laughs> See, this is how little I watch <laughs> watch games when there's a red card. Up two, red... Liverpool, one Liverpool up two. Up one player, with a player up. two goals. Um, I don't think that's a particularly interesting no, a set of circumstances. Point. You know that white card that uh, was shown in the game recently for mm. sporting behaviour, yes. wasn't it? What, yeah. what league was that in? I can't remember where that was. Well, that's too big a question. I'm okay. sure Steve will look it up. Well, there was a thing that's... Uh, you may have seen this, that it was a referee who awarded a white card. I think FIFA are trialling this thing to, to award good sportsmanship. What if you award the white card? You get an extra player. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be good. Then you are, at, then you are at one up. Yeah, and when, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, so Nick, I was going to just say Nick Pope's obviously out of the League Cup final, which is which is uh, bad for him. It's a real I, shame. I'm guessing he wasn't thinking that as he was trying to claw the ball. That thing, that was probably. The last and thing for context, he is hugely important to how good Newcastle have been. Their defensive record is formed on like a really strong defensive structure. We've got a video on it on T4IRL. If you want to watch that, uh, it goes into it in far more detail than I've got time to do right now. Uh, but Nick Pope uh, saves. I, I don't know. I think it was, it was. I can't remember the numbers. I won't say it. But like his expected goals prevented, something like that is really high. He's just genuinely good, and he's also I think maybe top in the league for um, keeper sweepings, as he comes off his line really early to prevent things going like exactly what he did against <laughs> Salah to then head the ball. And he incredibly. did it like in the third minute of the game successfully, didn't he? On, yeah, on he's Saturday been well. it was so important how Newcastle play. And they can play that high line because he does it. And that's what Liverpool caught him out twice because he wasn't able to. They did it really well. Is it This might be a really boring question. Is it right that he misses the League Cup final because he's been sent off in the Premier League? Yes. Yeah, that is true. And then... Debra- I know it's right, but is it, is it right? Oh, is, is it, it right? fair? Uh, it's, um, I don't know, probably seems not. Seems very unfair to me. I like the um, redemption arc that Loris Karius gets now because he'll play in the League Cup final. He has to play, doesn't he? Because Dubravka is cup-tied because he's played for United and could win a medal either way, I guess. he definitely. I, th- I think they mentioned it on Match of the Day that he, he will get a winner's medal if Manchester United win. He must League have Cup. played in there. Because he played yeah, in the tournament rounds, for yeah. Manchester United on while well, he was on loan. I don't know. that, But then if he doesn't play for Newcastle, does he then get a medal if he could be the only Newcastle player that only gets a, me- a winner's medal if Manchester United yeah. win the League Cup final I'm sure he is yeah. but uh, yeah so coming, that, coming back to the um, oh, it's Karius, the um, unfairness of um, bans from cards I think I'm right in saying that Paul Pogba when he came back to Manchester United had to miss a game in the Premier League because the rules in Serie A are if you are get a ban in Serie A it counts across all leagues and so he was brought in, couldn't make his debut in the first game because he had a ban. But maybe Steve can check that up. Well, I mean, it's it's just to stop all those people moving after they get a red card so that they so. I think after don't get a ban. We buried him earlier. I think Steve's within his right not to do that for us now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Sorry, but, well, Steve. He, he, has been, uh, he has been working on the white card uh, story. Football history was made on this Saturday, whenever the Saturday was. Uh, for the white card, it was shown uh, in the match between Sporting Lisbon and Benfica. Quite a big game, obviously. Um, it was shown in recognition of fair play. Um, but uh, did, did you get anything from that? You didn't really get anything other than like the white. It's like a gift card, really. Does anyone want a gift card in the middle of a football match? It's not really useful, is it? 
Well, yeah, those pictures after. that you see of footballers getting pizza after the game when they get man of the match. Yes. They're good, aren't they? Is that Connor Salmon who got that yeah. while playing in Scotland? And there, was, Partick, so, yeah. there was someone yeah. who used to give out, there's some team who used to give out pies as well. So you'd like win a game of football and then have a picture of a dude with a pie. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, way, that's the way it should be. Go back to commercial roots of football. Have uh, Partick still got the really scary mascot that they had really? The David Trigley one, yeah. They yeah. do, yeah. I can't remember what his name is, though. Yeah. Yeah, Trigley's. Danilo, probably. Trigley's doing well. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's good. Uh, right. Um, what was the other bit I was going to look at? Oh, because of uh, Liverpool, that's exciting. Okay, can they get back into the top four now? We sort of touched on it earlier. But now I'm looking at the table thinking, oh, no, they actually could get back into the top four because it's not a million miles away. Yeah, and they've got players coming back. Well, there's 38 games. They are one of the best teams in the league. They just had a terrible season. There's loads of reasons for it, which we've, again, there's, there's so many. We've covered it a lot in videos and we'll continue to do so. But like you see, Salah's kind of struggling this season. There's a lot to do with the right side. Alexander-Arnold's been targeted a lot this season. They've really struggled with it. The, John did a great video on the, the press not functioning the way it wants to. They've got transition of players. They've also had the nucleus of the same players for a long time. And teams tend to need shaken up. And one of the best things that Sir Alex Ferguson did and that we've seen Guardiola doing now is getting rid of key players even though they're in their peak because you need to change things up. If anything, just for the dressing room mentality and psychology, it's just to change it so people can't predict what you're doing. If Arsenal keep doing what they're doing exactly the same and don't change much, add a couple of players in two years' time, and they still got the key core, they'll be everyone will know how they play. They won't be as successful. It's what Liverpool have exactly the same thing. You got to refresh, add to it, make it different. And Jurgen Klopp appears to be very, very aware of this. This is his seventh year, eighth year, isn't it? And he lasted was it seven at Mainz and seven at uh, Borussia Dortmund, and the last one at Dortmund was a disaster as well because again needed to refresh and probably do that sort of stuff. It's what I keep saying. Ferguson did so well at Manchester United was just brutally get rid of players whenever he wanted to, just separate the friendship you have with them and just it, treat Man, it to be a winner. Man City do that pretty well as well because there's an interview with Rio Ferdinand and Pep Guardiola where Pep Guardiola's like, how many champ- how many Premier Leagues did you win? And he's like, five, six, however many it is. And he's like, was any of those teams like exactly the same team? And he was like, no, you have to you have to constantly change your players up. It's a, it's a real skill to be able to do. He also privileged if he can bring in players pretty easily as well but yeah true um i'm sure jürgen will be desperate to prove that point just to get to that eighth it, season we're saying that like liverpool have completely decimated their recruitment department recently so they've lost michael edwards who was the i guess the director of football and um they've they've moved another few i think a, a few um i think it's ian graham i think his name is who was um, in charge of the data side of things. I think they've both moved on. So that, I think, will impact the way that they rebuild the team as well. There's, there's, there's arguments to be made that the players that they brought in haven't necessarily suited the, the system that, that well, fixed the problems that Klopp's system has. So. Well, and that would be a case of he'll maybe need to adapt what he's what he has to what he has available to him. And that's kind of what you touched on in that pressing video, is that you have to change what you do. Because yeah. you can't just replace Manny with like for like, so you've got to change the way you then press and build and create it takes players time doesn't it as well Cody Gakpo's now got a couple of goals in two games so it's starting to see a bit from him and we should mention uh, uh, Stefan Bajetic Bajetic I knew I wasn't going to pronounce that right because he looked tidy in midfield which is somewhere Liverpool could do with a little bit of fresh impetus yeah that is the probably the bit you'd want to refresh I think there's I know we, I don't want to hammer home on Alexander-Arnold because obviously he's a really good player and like he's been done to death. I think Gary Neville did it best in pointing out how he could be just this elite level right back. But um, 
the the things that he lacks are so commonly targeted by rival managers that it becomes a real problem and then detrimental to Mo Salah on the right as well because he has to come back. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, um, if you watch the side, I, I often watch what the manager's doing, side of the pitch, and the first like 20 minutes before Liverpool took the lead in this game, he was going absolutely nuts at what I think was the closest players to him. I think it was Alexander-Arnold and Salah because when I was looking at him going crazy, you look at the pitch and Alexander-Arnold's out of position and Salah's nowhere to be seen on that right side and they're in a different transitional shape getting back into their defensive structure so I can only assume that's what it was but that's a case of them going up and what's worked before isn't quite there and as an Arnold it feels very mean to say bad things about him because he gets so much of it from places but I think a lot of it's really valid and then he does make up for it by being absolutely brilliant in certain situations as well like he's technically he's a fantastic footballer lovely to watch as well and you want him in most teams if he was at Real Madrid or Barcelona he'd be easily one of the best players as well but that's the thing. And then you put him into Liverpool against teams like, I don't know, Newcastle. They target it with players like Alan St. Maxman. He'll take him on 1v1, try and take him on a little trip. When he goes forward, they've got players in position ready to go for that left bit. They'll focus the play on the right to go and lead the team one way so they can target it. And they've done it for, for years. But weirdly, when I looked at the numbers a long time ago, a lot of the, chance, a lot of the goals they conceded, the chances came from the other wing, <laughs> where Andrew Robertson is, who is also a, like a brilliant fullback. Well, I think they they push Robertson further forward often, and yeah. and then so teams target the, the the spacing behind him, and then try and hit the back post and overload on Alexander Arnold. Mitrovic right? did it earlier this season, yeah, yeah with that back yeah, post header. Exactly. And then so like talking about the midfield, what they used to have the very best Klopp team for me was when you had Fabinho, Wijnaldum, and Henderson. That was the main three. Henderson covering for uh, Alexander Arnold, being a busy little bee in the middle of the pitch. Great, like uh, at, pressing forward as well, right? He used to just get really high up the pitch as well in pressing moments. He's right? like the sort of Ingolo Kanti of Liverpool, basically. He's doing loads and loads of work for lots of people. And although he's technically not the, the best footballer in the world ever, he is so important to how they play. And a lot of football is more about than just being good technically. It's about what you bring to the team as a captain, leader, legend. And then you've got Fabinho, obviously, classy player. Ronaldo, very much box to box. A real like classy player, but works very hard and has got the pace to get back and work in transitional moments. And then what they've gone to is Thiago, who is very good technically. He, his numbers show that he tries to press and win the ball a lot, but doesn't just do it very well. He's not really got a presence defensively, Thiago. And you can see him just not quite there. He lacks a lot of speed as well. Henderson's been in and out with injury. It's been a problem. Fabinho hasn't been quite himself as well. He keeps going in for weird challenges. It could easily be red cards as well. I don't know what's happened to that guy. I feel like he's just getting less protection, right? So he just gets into these moments where that could he's be super it, yeah. exposed as well. And Bayetic seems really neat and tidy. He seems like quite a Barcelona-y player, the way he plays. He's got a nice, like, takes a touch and a half turn and takes players out of the game and then moves it forward. I need to watch him more, but I think he's, yeah. I was talking to Mark Carey of The Athletic um, about Jorginho Wijnaldum because um, we were talking about the midfield problem, which is... Liverpool always seem to be struggling between having like really functional midfields where you can get a huge amount of upside from pressing or bringing in more talented technical players to yeah. then get an upside there because I think what they found is that, that, that you know they, they moved to the fullback system with these two really exciting creative fullbacks creating in different ways because they had a functional midfield so they needed their creativity to come from somewhere else. Teams then found out how to exploit these these really aggressive fullbacks and so they're much less likely to push their fullbacks as far forward and so then you have the problem like well where's our creativity coming from and uh, again the, the the solution to that seems to be like well, we need to have a more you know we need to bring in more technical players in midfield and so they seem to be on this cycle of, of, of constantly doing that but I spoke to Mark Carey about um, Jorginho and Wijnaldum and he said he tried to profile players who are similar to Wijnaldum like what was the because a lot of people say you know he's sort of the missing piece of that jigsaw and yeah um 
uh, the player he came up with in the Premier League who most suit, closely matched uh, Wijnaldum was Joe Willock of, of Newcastle. Is that right? Interesting. Well, yeah, very box-to-box player. Classy really good at well. possession. Really good technically. He works yeah. really hard at possession as well. He's a good player. But this like, is my, yeah. my theory that Newcastle are like the next... The next Liverpool. I, th- I see so many yeah, yeah. things to it. Yeah. Well, if Liverpool are to finish in the top four, they'd probably have to do it at Newcastle's expense. So that's an interesting subplot, he it's says. It's been such a narrative weekend, hasn't it? Full do you not think it's just been like everything that could have happened has happened? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Arsenal losing and then winning and then Man City winning and then not winning. And, you know, Nick Pope getting a red card in a hilarious manner. The ball bouncing off Martinez's head. All of these things that like... A goalie caught out from a corner. That never happened. I love that. Narratives. Narratives. Why did Unai Emery not say, can you not go up? Why did he not like... Get no, they were trying to get get an equaliser. No, but he said he didn't ever want his goalkeeper to do it. Maybe so can't he can't hear him shouting. I, I don't know. I, maybe, but yeah, I just but don't he, don't like absolutely hammer him afterwards if you've literally made no effort to tell him not to do it. But I don't know. Maybe it's right. It's fine. You're saying that Unai Emery got it wrong. Well, I just I didn't see the point <laughs> of hammering him, having not said, "Emmy, can you not yeah, get I mean, up there?" Effectively, you're losing and then you lose, right? Not a huge amount has changed in that situation. You've dropped a goal difference point. Maybe No one really cares. About. That's the point, isn't it? There, we do have some <laughs> stuff we can summarise before we speak about Chelsea. <laughs> Looking forward to that one. Martin Dubravka can only get a League Cup winner's medal if Manchester United win the League Cup, even though he's a Newcastle United player. That's weird. Paul Pogba was indeed suspended when he came back to Manchester United. He had uh, two yellow cards in his final two games for Juventus which caused a suspension that was carried over from Syria to the Premier League, which is interesting because apparently if a player had got two yellow cards in a Premier League fixture, they wouldn't serve their ban in the League Cup. So then Nick Pope would have been fine. Uh, For clarity, uh, the white card was used in the Portuguese Women's Cup competition between Sporting Lisbon and Benfica. And finally, on remote viewing. (laughs) Remote viewing experiments have historically been criticised for a lack of proper controls and repeatability. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is no scientific evidence that remote viewing exists. And the topic of remote viewing is generally regarded as pseudoscience. <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> Meanwhile, segueing perfectly into the fact that one team who probably won't win a trophy this season or challenge for the top four are Chelsea. Um, Could have made a joke about remote viewing the top four there. Disappointed in you, but yeah. there we are. Yeah, true. Sorry. It's all right. The top four is looking very remote viewing for Chelsea right now, isn't it? Thanks, John. You've done it. This yeah. size, you did it. I was That's just right. letting. I was giving you the room to step up, and Thanks, you've man. you've bailed me out. Uh, Chelsea <laughs> nil, one Southampton. Who's going to bail Chelsea out, John? <laughs> yeah, I've um, I've been thinking about Chelsea all weekend. I made a video as well. <laughs> yeah, as um, pressing. And there's some interesting things behind what's going on at Chelsea. Chelsea fans maybe not quite so lenient in their opinions about where the club is at right now than I am. But uh, I, I know exactly how they feel having been in that situation myself with my team this season. So, uh, But one of the things I found was that it, it, we talked a lot about what, what Graham Potter is really good at. Graham Potter at, at Brighton was he developed this really flexible system that allowed him to do that problem solving that we talked about with Arsenal. So you can, you can solve different phases of play. Um, you can get overloads in certain areas. You can pull teams around you can recognize how they're structured and, and set your structure up to cause some problems in that way he started off trying to do that we saw some fairly interesting things we saw Raheem Sterling being used as a sort of situational wing back at one point uh, all of the things that we expect from from Graham Potter but then over time that has stopped and now Chelsea are, I think are playing a really sort of 
bog standard 4231, uh, particularly in the wake of the January transfer window. And so in my video, I argued that what Graham Potter's done is he's tried to implement certain ideas, maybe hasn't got the buy-in that he wanted from from the players and has recognised now that because he needs to get results better to just have a really solid system, bring in all of the great players that he's got at his disposal and, and let them do the problem solving through their ability rather than necessarily through tactical solutions. The interesting thing about this is that actually if you look at the underlying numbers, which again I will say with a pinch of salt because the underlying numbers aren't everything, but there has been a bit of an uptick in form since they've done that. Uh, they are generating better and more chances than their opponents generally. So it does seem as though Chelsea are heading the right way at the moment. But the big question is, I think, and this isn't a question about Chelsea in general, because I feel as though the model that they've had in the past has been bring in elite players and then get managers who can just sort of get the most out of them by hook or by crook. And I think what Todd Bowley is wanting to do is he's wanting to get Chelsea to the same level as clubs like Arsenal and um, and Manchester City, which is and, and Manchester United as well, which is have a manager who can raise their level through that tactical aspect as well. So have elite players, but also get them implementing tactical ideas as well so that you can then challenge consistently at the top. And at the moment, Graham Potter isn't being able to do that. So it seems to me that what he's doing is just moving to a more basic system, get the results he needs to get a solid footing and then start maybe thinking about implementing the, those tactical ideas, which is what happened for Eric Ten Hag, I think, this season. He came in, tried to implement those tactical ideas early on and obviously didn't work out. And so they, they, they I think, change things a little bit to make it less build up heavy than he would have wanted to. I think the same sort of thing is maybe happening with with Chelsea right now. So Chelsea aren't very good at the moment, I would say. They're heading in the right direction. There's lots of problems with the way that they play. And yeah, I think that the big question is going to be like, do do the club give Graham Potter the rest of the season to see whether or not they can get to a level where they can start seeing those green shoots of, of something coming through. Now, a lot of Chelsea fans have lost patience and that's fair enough. That's their prerogative. I agree that when you're watching a team who are playing turgid football week in, week out, and people are there saying, well, the underlying numbers look okay. Like, who cares? Like, I don't... <laughs> that's an impression of yourself, John. That's an impression of myself, yeah. <laughs> I, don't go, I don't go and watch Leeds because... I want to to feel as though the underlying numbers at some point are going to turn around and we'll start getting results. What I want to go is I want to go and be entertained, right? Um, and so I understand why Chelsea fans are frustrated, but I do think that there is some sort of turnaround here and in the long run, it could work out. Maybe it won't work out. Maybe it won't ever work out. Maybe he's not the right guy for the job. But I think that the way that the Chelsea um, ownership will think, particularly being from a US background where they are very slow to move managers on, I think he may get the rest of the season and then they'll have a discussion in the summer about whether or not they want to continue with them. I think it does strike me as an issue if, if you've got your head coach changing how they're doing everything to try and get the results because you need results. And then you lose to the bottom team. And so you're definitely not getting the results either. I mean, it's, it's a bit like, it was almost like, well, where do you go from this point? Because I don't know, they've had some good chances, obviously. But, you know, just that whole situation of losing that game, being booed off. And it's like, well, this couldn't get any worse. And then you've got the second leg against Dortmund, which it feels like, well, that's kind of almost it, really. You've got to do something from that because then we can retain the faith in you achieving something in the Champions League because nothing's going to happen in the Premier League. Well, there's, a, there's an inevitable point in uh, a football manager's uh, tenure at a club where they will lose their authority in the respect of the group. They won't suddenly trust everything they want to do. And Potter's come in with not as high... Uh, like He is not a Hollywood star. He is um, very much uh, hard-working, quiet, uh, thoughtful, um, clever manager. 
That's, he's meant to be. He's got a degree, I think, in um, people management or something like psychology. A number of degrees, yeah. Yeah. So like he, he knows soft factors. He, he knows how to manage factors. people basically, and that's a really important part of management. People criticize him for not being angry enough and screaming and shouting when you don't actually need to do that. That's old school, um, like the English mentality. Well, not just English. You know, you know, just oh, old school football mentality. Yeah. I know, Maybe picking the English, on the English. English oh, wow, oh dear. Did in a Scottish accent as well. Yes, so. and he. Um, so like managing it calmly is a way to do it, but then. It's like very opposite to what Thomas Schuchel was and what Mourinho was. You know, like Mourinho is very strategic and not methodical. Was it been pragmatic would change things? Basically, what I'm trying to say is Potter is trying to then manage a group of new players, young men that he's trying to like mold into a team very quickly under very um, extreme circumstances. He will be learning an awful lot about the difference in level step up as well from what he had at Brighton to a very different club that's also transitioning. So what's happening behind the scenes at Chelsea is a lot of transition. Uh, and you'll see that play out in the pitch often, and that's kind of what you're seeing with Chelsea just now. Is you've got that trying to manage big Hollywood stars, so like uh, the likes of Joe Felix and all those sort of guys, getting them to play well. But once you lose that authority, it's like a teacher. If a substitute teacher comes in to a class, you don't have the same level. Well, you might. They might come in and have an instant authority and charisma, and suddenly you remember you remember being at school, Michael. Right? Yes, you come just. in, right? If you you ever hey, they had a substitute teacher. <laughs> it's like me hosting this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's more like Steve Hankey losing control of me and John. And the, <laughs> but the, um, that's the thing. So it's it's like having a teacher. That's what it is. That those players will see the coach, you know, as their coach. But it's essentially what a teacher is. Right? It's what's what you're doing, and you're trying to lead a group of people, and. If Potter's come in, doesn't have the charisma and like authority that those players need psychologically to then play at the level they need to. Like some people don't need an arm around them. Some people need to be screamed and shouted at because they have had a horrible childhood, and so that's what <laughs> that's what gets Explicitly, them going. That's what gets that them reason. going. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because that I have no particular uh, 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 what's the word uh, fondness for Manchester United, but I love what's happening there at the moment with Eric Ten Hag. I love how he's doing it. I love so many of the decisions he's made and I'm now watching them going oh yeah this is really interesting and he stepped in there and he he always seemed to have the charisma and I don't know just the the, the gravitas almost to be able to mold that team and to raise the level and I suppose the question I'm asking is I look at Graham Potter who's I think is incredible head coach with what he's done but I look at him and I just think I don't know if you're a head co- coach for a Top level, and maybe that's really cool. What do I shave, know? He needs to shave his hair off. That's what it is. Do you think that's bald king? You know, we have a gravitas to us. I think Ten Hag. So I disagree. He came in with charisma. I think he came in with not that. I think he came in, and um, I think there was even pundits on the TV who were like, oh, "Who's this guy?" Uh, coming across that way but they're and, good pundits though uh, some of them yeah <laughs> yeah but because the, they didn't get a couple of results remember they got done by Brighton and um, whoever oh, Brentford, Brentford right yeah. and so people were like do you know what he's doing does he have the, does he have control of the players but what he did was um, so he comes across as calm and collected in interviews and he says what he thinks he has a very clear thing of what he wants and that's what he goes for and if you don't do what he wants then you don't get in the team and what's happened is that because he's got results from doing what he wants People have gone, oh, he knows what he's talking about. I'll do what he wants me to do. And so now he retains a sort of authority in charisma, which maybe other managers wouldn't have had at Man United because they've changed to things to try and fix it. So if Potter is doing that thing where he's changing, going against his principles to try and get a team together, that becomes a problem because then he's not got a clear line of what he wants and won't get to where he wants to go. And like Ten Hag will have worked on training on that the build-up stuff that they were bad at. But they're often bad at it because De Gea is bad at it and Harry Maguire is bad at it and all these sorts of things. So then he's changed the personnel because Luke Shaw's a better footballer than Harry Maguire. So you put him in at that, that level and he can certainly do things that other players can't. 
And then you bring in other players specifically to play the way he wants. People are looking at Malassia thinking he's too lightweight. What's he going to be able to do? Really good player for exactly what Ten Hag wants. And that's why that's worked. And uh, I think Potter has, like, he's proven himself fit to do very well at Brighton and at previous clubs in Europe, right? And he's worked really hard to get up in the very low tier of English football for he is. And he's played at Premier League level. Like, he knows what he's talking about, this guy. And you don't have to do this thing where you scream and shout. But at a certain point, they're going to end up not qualifying for the Champions League, and that is very bad. And if they get knocked out of Champions League as well, you start to think that it's not even that the long-term project will work. It's that will they ever have the authority? Because you can't really manufacture it. Uh, that's it, I suppose. And uh, from Ten Hag looks like he's grown in that authority from some of the decisions he made initially with Cristiano Ronaldo and things like that. Whereas I know the last time I hosted this podcast, I think Graham Potter had had three games. I was like... I think one of my points was like, well, Graham Potter's great. He looks like perfect fit. And now I'm almost, it almost looks at it and I am thinking that that... I know I'm talking heat, so I just thought, because um, I'm just rambling. It's rambling, about rambling, rambling, rambling. No, it's not. <laughs> um, like that Ten Hag versus Ronaldo thing is massive because he, he then became bigger. He showed that the club is bigger than Ronaldo by winning that battle. And that is enormous. And so, um, like, Potter is not bigger than Chelsea. Chelsea's bigger than all the other things going on, but they've got loads of big players who just aren't, like, reined in almost. And, and you could say he's made a similar decision with um, Aubameyang, yet actually all that's happened is Chelsea look like they haven't got a striker. Uh, I think Aubameyang's just not. <laughs> it's, it's worth saying that with Potter versus Eric Ten Hag, I think actually they're both very similar coaches in a lot of respects. Like, tactically, they're, they're looking to do the same sorts of things. I do think there's differences. But Ten Hag had a whole summer to work on uh, on his team he was able to bring in the players that he wanted and he had he had those first two games where it went wrong and it almost that almost impelled him immediately to change and be like right let's let's think about what we're doing here let's let's change a few things up whereas with Graham Potter he comes in the mid, midway through a season doesn't have much time to work with the players and they actually as you said they did okay results wise in the first few games and I think you then get into that mindset where you're like okay you know there's 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 problems I don't think that those a lot of those wins were we're not convincing, but you're kind of thinking, well, we're getting results and in the long run, we're going we're gonna to be able to implement these ideas and, and everything's going to be fine. And then it didn't work out. And so it felt as though there was a certain amount of time before things flipped and he was then moving back to a more solid system. And, and that, that's where we are now, I think. So the, the big question for me is like, I, I agree with you. I think that the manager, the manager authority and respect in the dressing room is, is fundamental. If you lose that, there's no point having a, a manager in at a club, yeah, even if they're a very good coach. I'm not right? saying it's gone either. No, yeah, yeah, no, of course. Yeah. So the big question for me is like, do they just keep him in for the rest of the season, see if things sort of start trending upwards and get to a point where they can go into the summer and be like, now you've got a preseason. We think we can see things are heading in the right direction. You've got time to work with these players. The other thing is, is they brought in a load of players who they are elite players. They are playing a system which is based around getting elite players to problem solve together. So they overload on, 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 on the left-hand side usually and possess the ball and then generate these chances of getting into the box. That's going to improve just by dint of the fact that these players are going to play together and understand how yeah. their games function as well. So I think there's going to be a natural optic there. But like I've said, the big question with Chelsea always is, you've got to have a manager who matches the elite. You can't just simply rely on elite players to get you through. Maybe you could do that in the early 2000s. Obviously, Conte did it with a, with a tactical system. But like, I genuinely think that what they need now is a manager to come in who is of that tactical level to actually give them that extra je ne sais quoi which makes them an elite an elite elite side but yeah if um, say it was not Potter in charge now and they got to the summer Potter would be perfect to come in and take over <laughs> from that person yeah, yeah. I think like, like just the last point on it is like, I think the, the coaching aspect of this is really really important and people maybe just miss right because pre-season is where any team changes 
It's like some managers can do it mid-season, but it's very difficult because of the pure amount of time you've got. You get five weeks basically undisturbed. You put your own friendlies in to work on certain plans to put in your principles of play so that they will be seen later in the season. A lot of it's um, fitness. That's the first week and a half, maybe two weeks of uh, lots of fitness, but a lot of it we done with the ball. And then you do all your tactical stuff, so it's all there and you've got clear, uh, like, and you don't you don't train all day either. You do like an hour and a half, and then you do some fitness, and you do some analysis. That's what you do. You're not in all day because they're football. That's not that's not how that works. And so Potter now they play the game on like Wednesday night, say. So then the next day is recovery and rest and uh, and travel maybe. And then you might be able to like send them something to to look in their phone or their iPad to analyze it. Then you might they might come in, but it'll be a gentle sort of activation session, maybe a bit of just to keep them going conditioning. And then you might have a small session, like an hour long session of a small sided game to work on one little aspect. Is that really going to sit in in one week? Then you've got another day travel to the game, match prep, and that's it. You don't get much time to develop anything. It's exactly what David Wagner told me at Wigan Is that right? about Norwich on Saturday. Yeah. Well, there you, there go. you go. I am so, a genius. There we go. Uh, uh, Ruben Sellers uh, at Southampton you know I'm all about the narrative he looks like a manager and Southampton had a great win so he'll keep them up Uh, we think we've decided that good on him well that's Chelsea it's not great there things are better at Barcelona though so let's uh, speak about them just after this break and now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This was that break. That was the break that was. It's done. Uh, Barcelona. Well, it was a good game against Manchester United. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, And Barcelona, having had lots of broken levers and issues, and still some issues, uh, are at least flying in La Liga, JJ. They're flying. and, And they look like a proper coherent team. And will they beat Manchester United in the Europa League? Uh, they, they could. And then the narrative will beat they're amazing. And if they don't, well, Javi needs to, th- to work on his game. Uh, I, well, I, I've got a little soft spot for Barcelona, so I watch them now and again. They're doing very well this season. A lot of it's based on their defensive record, uh, which is nuts. smashing um, expected goals against, as in it's like unsustainable it's like, half, it's like half of what they should be at right so their expected goals against is 17.78 and their goals conceded is 7 that's a difference of 10.78 which is yeah, ridiculous that's, that's not sustainable I suspect. it's not sustainable so like they should come back round and when you compare it to like so like Real Madrid are obviously uh, just behind them so Real Madrid are what, 8 points off them right so that's what you've got now expected you can't this, this does not determine how well a team is playing just by expected goals or whatever and where they should be but I think it's interesting when you look at uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona both scored well 46 and 45 goals. So Real Madrid of 46, Barcelona of 45 from expected goal of almost identical 46.29 for Real Madrid, 46.26 for Barcelona. So almost identical, which is which is weird. 
with the same amount of games played. Uh, one goal um, extra for Real Madrid. Well done to them. Expected goals against, 20.38 for Real Madrid. They conceded 17. So that's sort of sustainable. I think if you're a good goalkeeper, which they do in Courtois, and really good defenders, which they also do, and they're better than everyone else in the Liga because there's only like four good teams in the whole league. So then you, <laughs> then you, go, then you go to Barcelona, who, as we said, have a, a variance of 10.78 goals conceded. A lot of it is to do with Ter Stegen saving about five goals more than he should be expected to. He's a great goalkeeper. But a lot of that is then going to be uh, basically pure luck. <laughs> It is. That's what. That can, and that's why it's not sustainable. In that strikers miss a chance, or maybe it's lots of low value chances created against them that are not um, scoring. Or... I love this though. Like, the, is there a chance that the point at which it becomes unsustainable is like I don't know the start of next season? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, so, it turns the balance out over years, seasons. You see it over a season mostly. Like really good players can break expected goal models. Like Harry Kane always break them. Holland, I bet, is smashing it. Like we've been looking at Lewandowski he always doing too hard. Yeah, and then certain goalkeepers can save more than they're expected to because they're really good. They're in the right position. They've got exceptional agility and athleticism to be able to save things and they read the game really well. Teams generally don't do quite the same. And you'll see, like, there's a thing that uh, John pointed out a long time ago to me is that um, the, when Guardiola doesn't win the league in England, it tends to be because another team <laughs> in the league is overperforming their expected goals and a massive moment. And that can do with, to do with psychology. Uh, luck is part of that. But that's the momentum that someone else rides. Like Liverpool, when they won the league, massively above their, what they ex- were expected to do according to certain models. So then again, like the models decide what it is. It's just a way to analyse it and look at it so you can see where maybe you should be. But Barcelona are defending really well. Uh, there's some tactical in- innovations or they're playing a box midfield like a lot of teams are. Uh, Alejandro Baldi's come on really well. He's this uh, left-back who's been around the club for a long time. Uh, is now coming onto his own. They're- they play him as like a... Just like a, a winger, a winger basically. Yeah, yeah. He, he does in defensive phases. He defends at left back, but he's a winger basically. He's really quick. He's it's really, really fun how they get into that box midfield, right? Because they have Gavi playing as like a left, left wide player, but he comes in as an inside forward, and then, yeah. uh, and then uh, they've been playing Frankie De Jong as the interior on that side, and he drops in alongside Sergio Busquets, who's currently injured, and then you have Pedri on the other side, and so you get this box just forming, and that creates space for. Balde or or Alba to get up really high and, it's, yeah, and then it's, it's like classic thing that everyone's doing now with the back four it becomes a three because Kunde plays at right back but he's really a centre back yeah yeah uh, Araujo plays at, he's a really I like Araujo I think he's a really talented player at centre back as well next to Eric Garcia's been playing well recently as well yeah Christensen's been playing pretty well yeah. too hasn't he but they, they changed a lot of stuff up for the Manchester United game which was a bit which was a little bit weird but I I do think Bus coming back to the underlying numbers thing like when you when we talk about regressing to the mean in terms of the underlying numbers. It's it's always like it, we're not saying suddenly Barcelona are going to concede ten goals more than they should do. Yeah, <laughs> what we're saying is is that you would expect them to start conceding at a at a level which is consistent with the numbers that they're doing. But the point is that they're now eight points clear. So even if they fall back to the same levels that their underlying numbers suggest, they're still the same level as Real Madrid. So it's unlikely that Real Madrid are going to make make up those eight points difference as well. So yeah. that's just how it that's just sort of how it happens. But I do think with Barcelona that what is different for between them and Real Madrid is that Barcelona do have the ability to have uh, a really coherent out-of-possession approach. Real Madrid under Carlo Ancelotti have never been particularly good at pressing from the front. And I think as a result of that, it really affects the the extent to which you can tr- control games. So we saw that run they had in the, the Champions League where it felt as though they, they just sort of had five-minute bursts where they scored goals. And the rest of the time, the teams they were playing against were largely dominant. And that's just a really risky way to play. If you can't control games, then you are likely to to eventually have it come back to bite you on the arse. Um, Barcelona, I think, are different because they have the ability to 
control the game in different phases of play. I think there's questions about the level that they're at. And I think like the tactical stuff that Xavi has brought in, which is which is really fun, that box midfield, that movement and the structure that he's got is great. But I sometimes feel like that's just a structure to try and get all of his best players on the field against four best midfielders. I mean, that is right? the game, really. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. But I, I also think that you know, you, tactics aren't just about that sort of having smart structures. It's about having the players function within those structures well as well. And I think that was what was interesting about the Manchester United Barcelona game because I think Manchester United deserved to win that game. They played much better than, yeah. than Barcelona, and and obviously it came off for, for Barcelona on the night. But I think. That's that's where you again coming back to what we were talking about with Chelsea before, right? You can put really good players into a decent structure and they can be good, but if you want to be competing at the really highest level, you need to have those tactical edges that I don't think Barcelona quite have at the moment. I also um, uh, thought like with, with Xavi and Barcelona, it's I mean it's proactive defending, so they're trying to win the ball early. Yeah, aggressive, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's, it comes from the whole like. Uh, you know, Cruyff idea that you win the ball high at the pitch, that's what you do. You swarm them, that's how you win it back and you need to put a structure in place to do it. Whereas Ancelotti is very much not that and it's it's not as bad not being proactive when you defend. So that he wants to win the ball in a different way. I know, like, although it does seem like they, were, they weren't, it seems like they weren't in control of some games that they won the Champions League. I think in a way that's exactly what he was looking for so like you sort of I think, bait teams I think into that's it. An approach. It's definitely his approach, and the players um, suit it. Like Benzema, he's not going to. You don't need to make him do any work like that, do you? Really? No. Yeah. Look, I, I think the problem with with Ancelotti is he's not going to be able to get those players to to do that sort of high pressure. Yeah. And like this is the question we have every year about PSG, right? It's like how on earth do PSG compete when they have a front three of elite elite creators who simply do not engage in the first line of pressure? So you're yeah. you're essentially <laughs> playing with like eight players defensively. And that's it. And and that's that's a problem. And um, I think like, I don't think Real Madrid at that level. But I also do think that you know if they could bring in a player like someone like a Julian Nagelsmann, who I guess isn't flavor of the month at the moment, but he, his big thing has been to you know revolutionize every phase of play at, at Barcelona, get them able to press high, able to fall back, etc., defend in different ways. I think that sort of approach would would uh, benefit a team like Real Madrid. But we're back at the Chelsea level, right? If you've got elite players, well, this it's is really it. hard to get buy-in for boring things like running around. And, and you, being... you can't make Just players... want it more. You can't understand. <laughs> Literally, just yeah. want it more. Like, you can't make players like Luka Modric and Tony Kroos run about and try to win the ball back in midfield. It leads you too open because they can't do it. So you've got to play in a different way and then you get so much more benefit about how they play. Like Barcelona can't play exactly the same way in midfield well, maybe it could be Pedri and Gavi, actually. They probably could do that. But um, <laughs> but like those players play in a certain way and it works. Like They've got Liverpool on, on Tuesday night, so this will come out on Tuesday morning. Real Madrid. Yeah. yeah, Real Madrid. Real Madrid are playing Liverpool. And so you'll see... I'm really interested to see what Ancelotti does, like how he sets them up, how he wants to win the ball back. Will he target Alexander-Arnold on the right? Almost certainly yes, of Vinicius Jr. And then where the overloads come and what he'll do. Because Ancelotti's a brilliant coach as well. Like Tactically, I think he's really good. But he just does things that suit the players he has in a less... Um, like there's a there's a theory that like the good tactical coaches are the ones like uh, Ten Hag or Xavi who do all the um the fan, the fancy yeah, new yeah. things right it doesn't mean it's you... like top down right where it's yeah. like this is how we're going to play here's the ideas whereas with Ancelotti there's famous clips of him talking to the players being like what would you do in this situation as well so it feels a little bit more bottom up with with yeah. Ancelotti like he allows the players to solve problems on the field to yeah. a degree solving problems well in, in fairness Barcelona were something of a laughing stock at this uh, you know with all their levers and issues um, whereas now they're coherent on the pitch and they're going to probably win La Liga so that's good and that wraps up that bit <laughs> I think uh, watch all the football at the, in the week it will be great uh, we are done I think that is enough time of the football talk so therefore I'll say thank you JJ thanks 
Thank you, John McKenzie. Thanks. Uh, thank you to Steve and Don for their sterling work. Uh, thank you to you, the listener slash viewer. Um, uh, remote viewing tells me Joe Devine will be back hosting next week, probably. It'll let you see in the future. That's not how that works. Oh. No. Must have been something else then. Maybe I saw it in a dream. If you could see through his eyes right now, you'd see where he was. But you wouldn't be able to. Oh, my God. No, let's not do that. Uh, see you later. Bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.